How's everyone doing this morning? You guys still tracking with me? You still awake? It's a good sign. Just getting started, so another hour and a half to go. Okay, a couple people are listening. That's good. Okay, well, this morning we're talking about expectations. Okay, and expectations are a funny thing because uh, they can totally change how you perceive a situation. So if something that could have been a positive experience, if you have higher expectations than that experience can match, it becomes a negative situation. So just as a quick example, uh, before Karison and I and Liberty moved here, we had heard about this extravagant winter in the Okanagan, that it was absolutely amazing, that when it snowed, it just, it just melted right away. You didn't even really need a snow shovel. And so we had this great expectation. Kerrison sold our snow shovels before we moved here. And then we came, and we had summer, and it was pretty good. It was awesome. And then winter came, and it snowed, and it didn't melt. And then it snowed some more, and it didn't melt. And then it just kept snowing. And I had to give up, and I had to go buy a snow shovel. <laughs> and, I, and then on top of that, it was gray, and I I'd kind of expected that a little bit, so I was okay with the grayness. But the snow, I, like... Don't, don't make me uh, feel too bad here, but like Edmonton, everyone says I'm getting soft, but Edmonton, I was used to winter, and I was expecting lots of snow, sunshine, it's cold, that's, that's what winter I was expecting. Okanagan winter, I was expecting this paradise, and then I was reminded it's still Canada, so <laughs> I got what I, what I should have expected. But, and maybe there's some of you that were smarter than me this morning. When you moved here, you went, well, I'll bring my snow shovel just in case, you know, everyone says. And everyone says it's, uh, it's unusual weather around here. But at what point does unusual weather become usual weather? So it rains more than usual. It snows more than usual. I'm starting to be, think it might be a little more usual than we think. But, so maybe some of you guys have some false expectations too. But... Let's, let's bring this a little different way. So expectations. Weather is one thing. But let, what about when it comes to relationships? So you have an expectation. Maybe think back. Uh, maybe some of this, you, this was a couple years ago. Maybe this was longer for others of you. But think back maybe when you, when you were thinking about getting married. You had expectations of what married life would be like. Maybe you watched too many Disney shows like my wife did. Just FYI, I'm not Prince Charming. Just, I, I can't compete with that expectation. But you have this expectation of people. And so this may be a spouse, but maybe with your friends. Maybe you think, well, your friend is going to be perfectly loyal all the time. And there's, there's nothing worse than when somebody that you had a good relationship with, that you were good friends with, that you were married to, that uh, was your daughter, your son, your grandchild, your father, your, your grandparent, whatever, turns on you. Because maybe you let them down. And maybe they, you said something you shouldn't have, or maybe they had an expectation of you that you couldn't possibly live up to. So maybe your friend was looking for you to fill a need in them that you couldn't possibly fulfill. And then uh, for enemies, that, or sorry, a friend that became an enemy, they became a frenemy, teaching you some cool lingo right now. Shelby Lynn would be proud, but a friend of me. But uh, I'm really cool, I know, Shelby Lynn. You'll tell me after. But with technology now, if you text somebody, the only thing that is there is your words. And so that can really easily be misinterpreted. 
because your tone of voice isn't there, your body language isn't there. And then maybe that person screenshots it, they take a picture of their Im the, the text and sends it to somebody else, and then it gets, starts getting spread. And so something you never meant to say starts getting assumed of you. You broke someone's expectations of you. And uh, this actually happens in churches too. Uh, there's a pastor in the States that has this uh, saying, he says, those you idolize, you'll eventually demonize. Because no person that you lift up on a pedestal can be perfect enough that they won't let you down. So if you idolize a person, even a pastor, they will let you down. And I heard this one pastor that whenever he would go to a new church and start working there, he would have a list of promises. And one of the first few was, I promise I'm going to let you down. Because he knew he couldn't be perfect. He wasn't Jesus. He could not be perfect. So he's trying to, day one, he was trying to establish with people, don't put me up on a pedestal because then you'll knock me down when I'm not perfect enough. But we do this to people, right? We do this to friends. We do this to family. We put expectations on them that they can't possibly fill. But here's the twist. We actually do this to God too. We put expectations on God that he was never meant to fulfill. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. But people aren't perfect. We've established that. Does anyone, is anyone here self-confessedly perfect this morning? I'm not putting my hand up. Oh, we got one. That's great. Okay, so someone's really close to Jesus over there. I won't say who it was. You can find her after, Eileen. But, uh, <laughs> but only God is perfect, right? We got that. That's the Sunday School 101. That's, that's Sunday Morning 101. God, only God is perfect. So think of the pain that you experience when someone close to you, maybe a child, maybe a grandparent, maybe a friend, when they turn on you because you disappointed them because you're imperfect, and they hold that against you. And they, they start, they've started being a person that instead of being loving towards you, is hateful towards you. They hold that anger and everything against you. And you think it feels terrible. It feels like your heart is being torn in two. But when you're in that, that moment and that experience, remember that Jesus knows what that's like. Because as we'll see in our, in our passage this morning, Jesus, Jesus experiences this. Jesus experiences that pain. But this week Friday, just as a, as a reminder, we're, we're getting together to celebrate Good Friday. And it, even calling it Good Friday is a bit ironic. Because Good Friday is the day we celebrate the death of our Savior. The crucifixion on the cross. And we celebrate it and call it Good Friday. But the reason that we can call it good is because we have the perspective of knowing the purpose and the hope that is found on the other side of the cross. And uh, today, we are celebrating Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is a day that we remember Jesus' triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And there's even an irony in this narrative today. Because for Jesus, he sees this as the road to Good Friday. He knew what was expected of him. He knew that this was his walk towards the crucifixion. And so for him, he has completely different expectations of the triumphal entry than other people do. And other people see it totally different than Jesus does. So our primary passage this morning is John 12, 12 to 19. Uh, I'll be reading it out of the NIV, which should be the same as in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, but 
for some of you this morning, this passage might be very familiar. Maybe you've heard this every year or more than once a year for many, many years. But maybe for some of you, it's a little less familiar. But either way, what I want you to do is to use your, a little bit of your imagination this morning and put yourself as if you were there. Trying to imagine this scene, set this scene in your mind and try and listen to it as if you were there. So follow along with me on the screen or uh, in your personal Bible if you'd like. It starts with, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. See how the whole world has gone after him. And God bless the reading of his word. So were you able to picture this scene in your minds? Let me help a little bit of context to help this image. So the great crowd that it talks about. So during the festival of the Passover that it was at this time, the population of the city of Jerusalem would swell from anywhere from 50,000, which was around the normal amount, to up to 100 or 120,000 people. So we, we aren't told how large this great crowd is, but the city of Jerusalem would only host so many people. And so the people that would come for the festival, as they were instructed to through the law, was, would be outside of the city. And so they would have been encamped outside the city. So I don't know how many tens of thousands of people this would have been, but a large crowd, group of these people had heard about Jesus, heard he was coming up the road because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they were following him. So think of a giant stadium of people in the open air following Jesus around and yelling out, Hosanna! And Hosanna means, uh, it means save us now, or salvation now. And so what this great crowd is saying is that they want Jesus to be the king of Israel. And they, are, they are use these symbolic palm branches. So palm branches actually wouldn't be used at Passover. This was quite a weird thing, actually. But what they're... Passover, or what the, uh, what the palm branches would have been used for is uh, the festival of tabernacle, or another term is festival of booths. So it was a time of, uh, this was a time of remembering that they had been in Israel and moving around and that God had been with them in a tabernacle. And so it was a totally different festival. And yet, uh, the reason that they use this is because it had actually been in their history that they used palm branches to, uh, to proclaim somebody king. So uh, there had been a king that they, that they used palm branches to proclaim him king earlier in the Old Testament. 
And so the palm branch became a symbol of their hope for a king who would save them. And at this time, their, their oppressor was uh, the Roman government. So Caesar was oppressing people. Uh, the Roman Empire had spread out over all of this area, and they were oppressed by them. So they were crying out to Jesus to save them from this Roman Empire. And uh, this isn't the first time that a crowd actually tried to crown Jesus as king. But the last time it had happened, Jesus just ran away from the crowd. It said that he had for- they had forcibly tried to make him king, but he was able to, to escape, to run away. But this time, he allows the crowd to proclaim him king of Israel. And yet, uh, we see that as we track further along this narrative, the same crowd that is proclaiming him king of Israel doesn't meet their expectations for that king. So they expect Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to rise up the people. He's going to create an army of peasants, and they're going to wipe out the Roman oppression. And, and this was a realistic image for them, because over and over and over again in Israel's history, they would disobey God, and then they would have a conquering nation, a neighboring nation that would come in, kill a bunch of them, take over control, and then the people would cry out to God, and he would raise up a leader who would raise up the people and they would restore peace to Israel. And so this happened over and over and over again. If you want to see a picture of it, just read the book of Judges or 1st or 2nd Kings. There's lots of times when God raised up a leader and he, uh, and he, uh, and he used them to save them. And the people thought that Jesus was this leader uh, because he was so clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit. He so clearly had God's will in him. And the the one thing that that excited them the most was raising up Lazarus from the dead. The kings of Israel were those who were anointed powerfully by the Spirit of God. So they were able to do amazing acts, such as raising Lazarus from the dead. That was something that they thought, this is clearly the, the king that God has chose to overthrow the Roman government. But God's plan was even bigger than their plan. They thought in terms of earthly time. They thought, okay, well, we have this Roman government problem. Let's get rid of them. But God's plan was even bigger than that. The people of Israel and all the people throughout the world had a bigger problem than just an earthly government. And it's a problem that people still feel and deal with this day. And that's the greatest enemy of mankind, period. That enemy is death. God is the source of all life. There are many, many verses in the Bible. Uh, I don't have time to go into them today, but there are so many verses that talk about Jesus as the source. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the only source of life. And so when mankind rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden, humanity removed themselves from the source of life. That act of sin brought death. And so the enemy is death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now remember the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And see, they're thinking in terms of save us from the Roman government. 
But what they're actually saying, ironically, and what they, they, if they intended it this way, what they're saying is save us from the greatest enemy ever. Save us from death. And so when they're proclaiming, Jesus, you are king, you are the one we need to save us now. God understands that as they needed to be saved from sin and death. And yet their expectation was broken, right? They had something even greater than they wanted in front of them. They had the source of life. And because he didn't meet their expectations as an earthly king, they rejected him. This same crowd of people who on Palm Sunday are proclaiming, Jesus is Lord, he is King of Israel, Hosanna, save us now. Five short days later, are either silent or are saying crucify him. And now, before we get too harsh on this crowd, even Jesus' disciples were silent or running away or lying that they even knew him. So before we get too snobbish and go, oh, well, this crowd, well, I would have been, I would have stuck to Jesus, just like Peter said, the, the likeliest thing is that we would have been there either denying him, being silent, or saying crucify him. So the man that came to save the world has a crowd proclaiming him king, and five days later, they're so upset with him that they want to kill him. So bring it to today. In what ways does Jesus not match up to your expectations of him? Is there something that you're expecting God to do that he's not doing? Is there a way that you want Jesus to act in your life that he's not acting? Is there a prayer you've prayed and you thought for sure God would answer it the way you want it to? Is there something that you're upset with God about because you have a bad expectation of him? Now, God is God, and we aren't. God has a perfect understanding of what we need. And so sometimes we want something that we don't actually need and we shouldn't have. Maybe if he gave it to us, we'd actually be worse off. Now, Jesus... When Jesus doesn't give us what we want, how do we react? Do we usually react pretty well? No? Yeah, like a two-year-old. So I, uh, I've probably shared this before, but my friend Alyssa was dying of uh, breast cancer that had uh, metastasized, I think is the right term, all over her body. And I, uh, I prayed, and I tried to convince God. I'm like, she's a way better Christian than anyone I've ever met. She's obviously going to glorify you. And the best way for her or for you to be glorified, God, is if you healed her miraculously. Because all those doctors, everyone that, that knows her would go, well, God is, God is so powerful. Of course it's a miracle. Of course it's God. But him in his sovereign wisdom knew that the best way for him to be glorified was actually through her suffering and eventually dying of cancer. And even on the day that she died, one little boy gave his life to Jesus because he said, I want to be in heaven like Alyssa. We don't, we don't know the power of God. We don't, we don't know what God is about. We don't, we don't have the end picture. So if we try and twist God's arm and say, you have to do it this way because this is better, God actually knows what is better. And that's what faith is because faith is a lot harder than being right and being like, well, God, you should do this this way. Yeah, 
I wish. But that's not quite how it works. So this, this people meant for God, for Jesus, to be the earthly king that they wanted. They wanted him to, to overthrow the, Reverend, the Roman government, and he didn't. And even for the disciples, when they watched Jesus die on the cross, the only thing that they had in their hearts was disappointment. I thought he was the one. I thought this was the guy who was supposed to be the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to die. The Messiah shouldn't be able to die. The Messiah is eternal life. They knew something had gone wrong. That they knew. And even Peter, uh, when Jesus had told him what was supposed to happen, he had told him, I'm supposed to die on the cross. He said, absolutely not. There's no way. This isn't what's supposed to happen. The harshest rebuke in the whole Bible for Jesus' closest disciple, get behind me, Satan. That's what happens if we try and tell God what he should or shouldn't do. He's gracious with us. He'll usually be kind to us. He'll be gentle with us. But God knows what's best. We don't. So when we hear of Jesus raising the dead, we celebrate, right? Woohoo! Lazarus, raised from the dead. That's the verse we always go to, right? When we, when we want hope for healing or the, uh, the other ones, we, go, we always go to the ones that are healing, the ones that somebody for sure got healed. But if you think about it in perspective, how many people were on the earth and even just in the Middle East when Jesus was walking the earth? Did he heal absolutely everybody? Did he raise absolutely everyone who died from the, from the grave? No. Miracles are miracles by their very nature because they're rare. And they're all the more splendid for that. And so, yes, we have hope. But the greatest miracle of all is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That even though we've sinned, even though we've fallen short, even though none of us can possibly earn it, God still loves us enough to send his son Jesus to be proclaimed king over sin and death. That's the greatest miracle of all time. So our response to Jesus needs to be welcoming him as king and as Lord no matter what. No matter if he answers our prayers the way we want to, he needs to be our heart's desires. And so in my own life, Kirsten can't fill all of my needs. That's just a fact of life. I have a God-shaped hole in my life that only God is meant to fill. Is my, my life more rich for having an awesome wife like Kirsten? Absolutely. Is my life more rich for having liberty? Absolutely. But even as we shared last week, uh, just the desire to have another child could have been an idol that wrecked my faith. Is it a good desire? Is it one that I think God put in my life? Yes. But God has to be God and nothing else can take that place. So even good things, if they become God things, are bad things. So anything that we put in front of ourselves in between us and God is an idol. So are we to enjoy life? I would say so. I think God says he came to give us life and life to the full. Abundant life. And that's not just in the future. That's now. But it doesn't mean that every second of every day is going to be sunshine and roses. It means that no matter what we're going through, even like Paul and all of the crazy persecution, all of the beatings, all of the times he's been stoned and they like stoned to death with rocks. And they thought, you have to be careful, they're legalizing marijuana this year. But anyways, uh, uh, but they, even he goes through all of that, he says, 
joy knows no bounds. The life of following Christ, your joy knows no bounds. So no matter what you are going through, you can have hope and joy. So in many ways, the, the death of Jesus and the crucifixion was an anticlimactic. People raised him up and said he's king on Sunday, and on Friday, they're disappointed. That can't be it. That can't be the end of the story. And they were right about that, because the resurrection comes. And it wasn't until after the, the crucifixion and then Jesus died and rose again that they understood what they had witnessed. The disciples finally understood, and that's what John says in this passage, is that it wasn't until after these things had happened to him that they understood that Hosanna, save us now, means from sin and death. So in what ways do you have false expectations of Jesus in your life? In what ways are you holding up something in front of God and saying, if you don't do this, then you're not my Lord? Is there ways that uh, you're holding on to maybe hurt and anger towards God? Maybe you've had a false expectation of a loved one that you've expected them to do something that only God can do in your life. So there are so many things that we, we try to fill our lives with. Uh, we may be friends, movies, books, our spouse, our family, children, games, sports, the praise of others, recognition, achievements. None of these things are bad things. But if they become God things, then they're idols. So we need to make sure that we look to God to fill our needs. And then these things can be joy that comes from God. So when we hear of D Jesus raising from the dead, we celebrate. And we hear about raising from the, or healing people, hearing the blind, we cheer, we rejoice. But when we, expect to, when we tell God and we expect him to act in a certain way every time, we're actually making a pretend God that doesn't exist. We don't tell God what to do. Is he good and gracious like a father that wants to fulfill our wants and desires and needs? Yes. But like a loving father, he doesn't give his children everything that they desire because they will distract him, they, them from him. So the message of this passage and the warning for us is that we don't get excited in the things that God can do for us. We get excited about who Jesus is. We don't get excited about the things that God gives us just for the sake of those things. We get excited about who the giver of those gifts is. So when he gives us things, we can rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. But like Job, we should be able to say, God gives and God takes away. The name of the Lord be praised. No matter our circumstances, no matter the joys or the sorrows of our life, May we say, the name of the Lord be praised. So the, the people in this passage, we're, we're being a little rough on them, but they did something really good. There's actually two crowds in this passage. There's the one that is following Jesus and claiming him as Lord and saying Hosanna, crying out. And then later on in verse 7, 18, it says that there's another crowd that came out. Not because they had witnessed the resurrection of the dead from Lazarus, but because they had heard about it. So this crowd of people that had witnessed a mighty move of God had went out and told other people. They had went out and spread the hope and their testimony about Jesus. And now they didn't do it perfectly because they didn't have the whole picture. 
but they unashamedly lifted the name of Jesus high. They didn't care what other people thought. It was crazy to think that Jesus raised from the, someone from the dead, but they were so excited, they didn't care what other people thought. They just went and told people. They went, can you believe this guy? I think this guy is the king. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and they didn't care. Maybe someone made fun of them. Maybe somebody laughed, and he's like, I don't care. I saw it. I believe it. Do we have that same courage to go out and say, now, Jesus changed my life. You know, like, I used to be this way, and I'm this way. And Jesus uh, spoke to me yesterday when I was reading my Bible, and it's crazy. I have this testimony I want to share with you. And we don't, have to use, we don't have to use big words. We can just be normal people and say, you know, this is why I go to church on Sunday. Do we even tell people that I'm going to church on Sunday? Would you like to come? Or do we, we kind of hide it in our lives? There was this interview I was listening to this week, and it said that a lot of Christians are actually uh, practical atheists. And what he meant by this is you can't tell they're a Christian, and they won't ever tell you they're a Christian. Because they, they just, they'll be a Christian at church, but then they won't ever tell anybody that they're even going to church. Because they don't want people to think they're weird. Or, they, or as Canadians, we don't want to push people and make them feel uncomfortable. But Jesus actually made a lot of people uncomfortable. Not because he was rude or mean or a jerk, but because of just who he was. Who he was made people uncomfortable. And so our goal isn't to make people uncomfortable, but our goal should be to love them enough to tell them the truth, that Jesus loves you no matter what. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to earn it. But let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Do we have that courage or are we afraid? Do you want to just passively coast through this life and just hope that maybe I just did enough to get in. I just want to do the bare minimum. You know, I, I, I've served my time. I've did my thing. I just, I just want to get in. I don't need to be a superstar Christian. You know, like I don't need to be an Apostle Paul. I just, I just want to get in. I just want my name written down in that book of life, that the Simpsons cartoon with Peter at the gate. I just, I just want to sneak in. Is, is that our goal? Or, or do we want to get there running over the finish line? finish strong? Do we want to be like Paul, who actually said right up to the end that he's being poured out like a drink offering? He ends, he ends his ministry by, he's still working and investing in young people. And he's, he's like a coach, I've said this before, calling out plays, telling them where to go, what to do. And he's invested his whole life in them. That right to the end of his days, he's running for Jesus. He's making a beeline. He's not trying to hope that he's just done enough to get in. So uh, I want to invite the worship team to come up here this morning and uh, start playing a little bit of music for us while we, while we think about and respond to this. But I'm not sure about any of you here this morning. But when I get to heaven, I don't want to hear Jesus go, well, you, you, did, you did pretty good. You know, you got in there. You, you did enough. I, I want to go there, and I want to see that I was used mightily of God. I want to see so many faces of people that I didn't even know I impacted. And, it, and it's not about me. I don't want the glory. I don't want the credit. I want Jesus' name to be made powerful on this earth and in the kingdom. And you know, uh, sometimes I, like, I get praise from people and I always get a little, uh, but when, when I hear that somebody was impacted by something I said or did, my first thought isn't, oh, I'm pretty good. My first thought is, that's amazing. I can't believe that God used me that way. 
And I want that to be true for all of you. I want, I want each of you to have a testimony of, I can't believe the way God used me this week. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and what he is doing and what he wants to do. Now, God isn't a small God. God is a big God. And he has a huge dream and he has a huge vision for our church, for our community, for our families, for our lives. And I think sometimes we think too small. I think sometimes we try and just settle. You know, we just want to do just a little bit. We just want to do just enough. But I don't think that's good enough. I don't want to do the bare minimum. I want to do everything. I have huge dreams for all of us as a church family. And I know right now our, our tendency would feel like, well, we're hurting. We're sad. We're going through a hard time. We want to pull back. We want to pull in. We just want to be sad. And it's, it's okay to be sad. But I, I think that's what the enemy wants us to do. I think what Jesus wants us to do is press forward. I think what Jesus wants us to do is press in. I think what Jesus wants us to do, I think this time is meant to catalyze us to act, to move forward, to break down walls. You know the saying when the, the gates of hell shall not prevail? People think that's defensive as the church. Well, the enemy can't get in. That's not a defensive strategy. That's an offensive strategy. The, the church is not meant to be sitting still. It's meant to be going forward, breaking down walls, and changing lives for Jesus. That is what it is. And we don't have to be good enough, because we're not. Jesus is good enough. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the resurrection. So we don't have to fear this life. We don't have to fear what anyone else can do to us. We don't have to fear being persecuted. We can actually rejoice, because it means that we're actually doing something valuable. It means that we're actually moving and following. So what I want to challenge you with this morning is if you want to commit to actually following Jesus with your whole life, you don't have to have that figured out what that looks like. But whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you've never made that full decision, I want those who are willing to have the courage to stand up and say, I want my life to be about following God. I, wa I want you to come forward and make that step and come forward and don't care what anyone else thinks. It's what God thinks of you that actually matters. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed of what the world thinks of you. Don't be embarrassed what anyone else thinks of you. I want, if you want to follow Jesus with your whole life, if you want to this week share the gospel with somebody, I want you to have the courage to stand forward and fill this front. Don't be shy. Father God, we have an enemy that wants to use this season in our church to divide us and to destroy us. He wants to distract us and he wants us to go on the defensive. He wants us to be discouraged and to withdraw from you. He wants us to think that you are cruel and unkind and he whispers other lies to us that because of everything we are experiencing and going through that you aren't with us. But hardships are nothing new to your church, Jesus. Hardships are something that you've seen and you've been with and you've walked alongside. Hardships are something you've experienced, Jesus. When uh, Saul was persecuting the church, persecuting your people, it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus, may we be so filled with your Holy Spirit that we don't even think about ourselves, that we think about you, Jesus. And so throughout the years, many people and many forces have tried to destroy your church. And whatever hardships come, your people only get stronger. May that be true for us as a church family. Use this time to empower us for the mission that you have given us as a church. 
Father, I reject fear of man. I reject the work of the enemy, and I declare this morning, along with all these people who have gathered here, that you are Lord Jesus. You are Lord of our lives. You are Lord of this church. You are the great shepherd, and we commit to follow you with our whole lives, Jesus. We commit to being courageous enough not to care what other people think, that we press forward and press into you, Jesus, and that we tell other people the hope that can be found in you alone, Jesus. Lord, help our whole lives to be transformed by your gospel. I pray that you would move so powerfully among us that, uh, that we don't think of this building as the church, that we see ourselves as the church outside of these walls. There's a whole world that is passing away and needs to hear about you, Jesus. I pray that you would light a fire of passion in our hearts that we can't help but pray for those people, that we can't help but walk up to those people praying, even as we're worried. What do I say? What do I say? That your Holy Spirit would give us the words, Jesus. May we not be people that try to be small-minded and think, I just want to get in. May we be people that want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't peter across the line. You ran across the finish line, Jesus. So I thank you for who you are and what you are doing and what you are going to do among us this morning. Now, as we respond to you in worship and in praise and in prayer, may you move powerfully among us and your Holy Spirit bless us. In your name we pray. Amen.